0: Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellam Hi, everybody. This is Vank Bellam with Always On EM. I'm excited to be with uh, Dr. Alex Finch, and we have a special guest today. I want to introduce Dr. Jim Hami, who is the residency director here at Mayo Clinic for the Department of Emergency Medicine, also is part of the residency leadership for the Department of Pediatrics, too. And he's really passionate about something that I found really helpful personally, and um, so we're really excited to have him. Jim, welcome to the stage. Thank
1: you, Vank. And Alex, it's great to be here. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself Sure. Well, uh, I'm a, I'm a native Minnesotan, and I like to say I went out east for medical school because I went from the Twin Cities, where I went to undergrad, to Southeast uh, Minnesota in Rochester, and <laughs> attended medical school here at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it was Mayo Medical School back then; it's now the Alex Mayo or Alex School of Medicine. And then I I stayed on and did my training in pediatrics here, um, spent an extra year as a chief resident and then did another residency in emergency medicine. So uh, I'm not sure what that qualifies me for other than not not somebody to give people um, advice as to how to get to their end destination, in their career really rapidly. But it's given me an interesting experience. perspective. And as you mentioned, I've had roles in education, both in the pediatrics realm and now currently in in emergency medicine, which has been really enjoyable.
2: We're uh, very excited to have you today. I love the comment on taking the the long way to emergency medicine. That's uh, a lot of training. I was hoping to work through a scenario that some of our listeners might have had to deal with. I'm going to put this at a 2 a.m. situation. You have a three-year-old with a forearm laceration. Incidentally, I would say there would There'd be no one I would rather have take care of my child uh, than you at 3 a.m. So it's a simple laceration, but the kid is freaking out, just screaming. You're working by yourself. This is a small community emergency department. The waiting room is overflowing. You know, when I'm in this situation, I think we have a couple of options. Number one, we hold the child down and it's kind of an unpleasant situation for everyone. I know the kid's never going to want to go to the doctor again. The parents are upset. I'm upset. Nurses are upset. We can do a full sedation, but sometimes for, you know, a tiny little laceration, that feels like a lot. I know in some community emergency departments, this involves calling in maybe a respiratory therapist from home. It's a huge resource utilization, but I understand that, that you have a passion for maybe a third option. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah, these are, can be challenging scenarios and, and, I think where you're leading us to um, the topic that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today is, is the use of nitrous oxide. Now, now I, I don't want to imply that nitrous is a solution for every three-year-old screaming in <laughs> the middle of the night, but it's one possible solution. And I think it's an important tool to have in the toolbox. There's lots of things that we can do to try to improve the experience, first and foremost, of our patient, which is that three-year-old and his Parents and whether it's 3 a.m. in the morning or 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I think we owe that to our um, patients is that we try to provide them the optimal experience and care no matter what time of day or when they present. But you've alluded to that that can be challenging, you know, resources and things. And so having something that you can utilize that doesn't consume a tremendous amount of resources has a high likelihood, although not necessarily 100% likelihood of being successful, and maybe can be done even without your personal guidance or direction as the highest level provider um, is really nice. And nitrous, I think, falls into that category. I certainly don't advocate for the holding down and traumatizing everybody. That happened to my own daughter in a dental office, and it took us years and lots and lots of, of desensitization exposure to get her back into a dentist's chair without extreme fear. Wow. And it broke my heart. And so, again, it's something that I think we, we want to think about as how, what effects this is having on the patient long-term. And nitrous um, can really help with that. And, and you bring up the dentist's office, you know, there's a
0: bit of a history with nitrous and dentistry. Can you share some of that?
1: Well, yeah, um, nitrous was, it's, it's not a new therapy and it's been around for a long time. And initially when it was discovered, it was discovered to to be uh, quite enjoyable and it was used recreationally. And that's where that laughing gas came from. And then, um, you know, a little history, Horace Wells, who's considered the father of anesthesiology, he initially used chloroform and also nitrous oxide to help mitigate discomfort for procedures. And he was a strong advocate for using nitrous oxide and even allowed somebody to pull his own tooth while he had nitrous oxide on board to demonstrate its efficacy.
2: Um, Wow. Yeah,
1: so um, strong proponent of this. It's been around for for a long time. Actually, I gave a presentation way back uh, many years ago in our grand rounds, and I started out that presentation Uh, with a little video clip of LL Cool J's uh, Mama Said Knock You Out because of the very first two lines. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years is what he says. (laughs) And I just wanted to point out to people that this is not new. This is not novel. But we've seemed to have forgotten or missed the boat on this where our dental colleagues have used this for many, many years because who really wants to go to the dentist? It's very few individuals. And so they found that this is a safe way to help um, make that experience less uncomfortable for many people. Now, there are still people who who still need to go under to get dental procedures done. Uh, Nitrous isn't a panacea for everybody, but it does work for a lot of situations and it can really help improve an experience. Absolutely. I
0: had a surgery earlier this year and uh, I was really anxious about it and worried about some pain and it was just nitrous and it was phenomenal. I had such a great experience with it. It was my first time ever receiving nitrous. Afterwards, I called Alex to tell him like, this was amazing. I I just really wish I had known how effective it could be. Um, As you think about which patients are going to benefit the most and which procedures that maybe it works the best for in emergency medicine, how do you conceptualize that?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I think about nitrous as um, both an anxiolytic and an analgesic. And at the lower doses, it's more of an anxiolytic, although even low doses, even they, it's been equated to like 25% nitrous is equivalent to 10 milligrams IM morphine. Now I'm not sure exactly if that's true for everybody, but, but there is a significant analgesic effect to it, but it's it's really its greatest benefit, I think, is in that anxiolysis category. And so I think about procedures that are creating a lot of anxiety, and also have a associated discomfort, because it does help with the analgesic part of it. So it's also very nice for things that you want that you think are going to be brief, because it has a rapid onset, usually you get some effect within about 20 seconds, but it has even more importantly, a rapid offset. So within about, Three to five minutes, it's completely out of your system. So for things like lumbar punctures, know casts, sometimes IND of abscesses, which we know we never get good enough at local anesthesia for that. And, and often people have these procedures done over and over again because they have recurrent problems and they have negative experience after negative experience. Right, right. Well, adding nitrous on top of that can really make that experience much less, uh, uh, much less traumatic for them. And the other interesting thing about nitrous, in addition to its anxiolysis and analgesia, it has this sort of pseudo dissociative component to it where people are awake and they recognize that you're doing something painful, but they just don't care. And I've had this happen many times where the patient is saying, ow, 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 and I say, would you like us to stop? Mm-hmm. No, it's fine. Keep going. But But you're saying it hurts. Oh no, it's fine. And they're not sweating and they're not tachycardic so they're able to interact with us and share that something maybe is hurting but it doesn't bother them which is really interesting i I think of it as almost ketamine like that way except for they're much more able to interact with us and so there's you can imagine shoulder reductions you can use it for it's being used now for labor pains uh self-administered for labor pains and that's not a new practice but it's kind of coming back into vogue where the person self administers when they're feeling this coming on because it's rapid in onset and it's rapid in offset so as the pain comes and goes and comes and goes so it's been even used for things like renal colic although I'm not sure that I would um, would would put somebody in our observation unit puffing on nitrous for 6 or 8 hours that's probably not how we're going to use it another area is when that Procedure is going to be painful for a little while, and then not so bad, but still anxiety producing. So thinking about a hematoma block, which using a needle to inject into a fracture site can be painful and anxiety producing, but then the subsequent reduction can still be anxiety producing, but it's not nearly as painful. Nitrous can be a great thing for that, where you can cover over the the anxiety of the whole thing and some of the analgesia. So I could go on, but... Uh,
0: and we're going to have you do that. That's awesome. And you mentioned it using being used for labor pains. I guess I'd be a little nervous about any effects to pregnant women breastfeeding. Do you know of any any reason not no, to give uh, it to that it, group?
1: There, there's absolutely none. There's there's a theoretical risk of teratogenicity early in pregnancy. So sometimes uh, we will we will recommend that. Um, first trimester pregnancy, avoid nitrous. Now it's just a theoretical risk. It's really never been proven. So I would, I would never um, be concerned about a pregnant nurse in a room with nitrous primarily for these reasons. It's heavier than air. So it settles out to the ground and all of the devices that we currently use to administer nitrous have a scavenging component to them. So what little does maybe get into the environment, it's going to settle out of the ground. So unless that person is laying on the floor, sucking up what little tiny nitrous is left over, they're probably not even get any exposure whatsoever. There is some effects on vitamin B12. So if somebody has a known vitamin B12 deficiency, it's probably not the type of person you want to have using nitrous a lot. So over long periods of time, over and over. And that's, I think, one of the um, concerns if people abuse it, they can create some problems for them. But in a short-term uh, procedural type setting, it's perfectly safe. There's some contraindications, obviously, because it, it diffuses so rapidly into, um, into gas-filled spaces that you wouldn't want to use it in pneumothorax because it could expand the pneumothorax. You wouldn't u- want to use it in a bowel obstruction. COPD is a little bit of a dubious situation for it because of displacement of oxygen um, and also those air-filled spaces that when they expand, they could rupture. Um, But otherwise, there aren't very many patient populations or situations where where it would need to be avoided. And it certainly has no effect on breastfeeding. There's no residual. It's breathed out of the body. It's excreted. so, So there's nothing residual to be Uh, transmitted to the breastfeeding baby.
2: You described a little bit about ketamine. This sounds so much like ketamine to me with the patient who might be saying ow, and then you ask them what's going on and they're doing completely fine. I think actually you taught me that in terms of consenting a family, you, you have this incredible technique where you tell the child with ketamine, a fact or a sentence and and you'll have to describe the technique uh, for our audience. But the big question I want to ask, thinking about this similar to ketamine, is this sedation? How do you view that, and how does how does our institution view that?
1: yeah, it's it's a really great question, and I think it's one of the biggest barriers too, because uh, sedation is sort of thought of as this sacred territory that we have to either relegate to a certain practitioner group or that um we have to put up some boundaries around to, be, to make it safe. But sedation is really a continuum of alertness. We have to think about it that way. And, and we have that continuum from extreme agitation all the way down to general anesthesia. The use of the word sedation is very inaccurate in the sense of it, it's a broad descriptive term. And so we have to make sure that we're talking about what we're really talking about. And nitrous oxide as a standalone agent really is primarily in that anxiolysis and very minimal sedation on the continuum. There are different con- sedation scales, but here at Mayo we use uh, the Richmond agitation scale and, and zero is alert and calm. A plus one is considered restless, a plus four is combative. So we you know that would be, and then a minus five is unarousable. That's kind of general anesthesia. And we consider um, moderate sedation to be things below a negative two, which is defined as light sedation. Moderate sedation is a negative three where movement or eye opening to voice, but no eye contact. I have to, I have to really engage with you to participate uh, in, in just in interacting with your environment. Nitrous is often a zero or a minus one where they're alert and calm or they're maybe slightly drowsy, but their eyes are open and they're engaging. And that's where it's different than ketamine. Ketamine as an analgesic doesn't produce sedation at low doses, but at higher do- dissociative doses, they may respond to stimuli, but they don't interpret that stimuli. And that's that leads to the, the thing that you were talking about. I assure patients that when I'm sedating them with ketamine, they will not remember what happened. And I often prove it by telling them something while they're seemingly awake in the, in the room when they might be interact, active in some way and they never remember it. Nitrous is different. They will remember, but they'll remember that wasn't bad at all. So I think when we're using nitrous, you have to realize that the patient is awake and they are interactive. But the interesting thing is that with some things, they just don't care. Now that's not everybody's experience. And that's why we, when we're using it for certain procedures, have to be much more engaged as the the person directing it. Where there's other procedures, we don't have to be as engaged because we know that those procedures are probably more anxiety than they are painful, if that makes sense.
2: It definitely makes sense. And kind of along those lines, when I think about a sedation, there might be an airway provider present in addition to the primary procedural provider. There are certain requirements about entitled cardiac monitoring. How are things similar or different when we're doing nitrous?
1: Yeah, so we have a guideline here, and it's considered minimal sedation, similar to like how we use intranasal midazolam for pediatrics, where we just put them on a pulse oximeter. You don't have to have a respiratory therapist in there. Um, You don't have to have necessarily separate proceduralists um, observing uh, than the person doing the quote-unquote sedation because it's considered minimal, and that really is a low-risk thing. Now, uh, our guideline, though, does talk about it in terms of increased monitoring depending on what your intended level of sedation is. If your intention is to try to get the patient to that moderate or deep level of sedation, and I'll tell you that using nitrous as a sole agent, even at 70%, which is the highest percentage we can get, it's very uncommon that you'll get them to that depth. You usually have to use an additional agent to do that. And so nitrous as an isolated agent, you're very unlikely to get them into a moderate or deep sedation level, okay? But if your intention is to get them there, using a combination like with IV fentanyl or with other medications, then we would use the same level of monitoring that we would for say propofol or uh, ketamine or combination medications with respiratory therapy and entitled CO2 and all of the monitoring, because your intention is to get them to that level of sedation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you, what happens if your intention wasn't to get them there and they got there? Well, The reality is they're not likely to get there unless you're combining things, but because it's so short acting, even if they go a little beyond where you intended, all you do is stop the agent and very rapidly it's reversed. And that's where some people advocate for self-administration. So we often in the pediatric population have to help them keep their mask on. Um, or, or, but there's also self-administration, and that's what labor and delivery is, uh, is a self-administered where the individual holds the mask or the mouthpiece to themselves. And so if they start to get overly sedated, they just stop breathing the, the uh, nitrous. And so it adds an extra level of safety. Although when I talk about safety in terms of nitrous, there is nothing that is even anywhere close to comparable as far as safety profile. So, when we talk about nitrous oxide and we talk about safety, we are really talking about trying to create barriers to prevent danger that is highly, highly unlikely to even come close to existing. So, but we always like to talk about safety with anything that we use. So,
0: In my experience, I was doing the self-administering and I found there was about a one-minute like, pre-puff time before I really felt kind of like I was floating. And the proceduralist would guide me that, hey, in, in about a minute, you might need
1: more. So why don't you start taking some big breaths of it right now? You, do and that's that, act- and you, you absolutely had the peak effect usually is about a minute to two minutes. You can get yeah. some effect. And I think that's an important thing that people who are using it understand. It's not immediate. There's a little bit of a delay. And then, yeah, the duration. So, so your experience, I think, fits with what, um, what many other people have. And that's part of understanding how to utilize it for individuals.
2: In terms of the technique, I'm hearing wait a minute to two minutes before you make your incision or stick a needle in. But the other thing that you are very facile with is dosing. You described the upper limit as 70%. You know, I feel really comfortable with ketamine dosing, other sedation. How, how do you approach the dosing of this and how does that work?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So you can go as, you know, as low as you want, but, but the reality is anything that's probably less than 50% you're not going to have a lot of adverse increased effects below 50%. And therefore starting below 50%, you may just delay your getting to where you want to go. So I usually start at 50% um, unless the patient is starting out super, super anxious and already agitated. And then I might start a little bit higher, but I titrate it up or titrate it down. I think one of the big mistakes people make is they start too high, too fast. And that can sometimes have a disinhibitory effect, and can cause actually dysphoria and increased agitation. Now, if you continue at that level, they may get past it, but it seems like, whoa, this is having the exact opposite effect of what I'm what I'm looking for. So start low and titrate your way up. And you, you absolutely nailed it um, when you said wait before doing that painful thing or before judging the effectiveness of the dose that you're at. Give it time. So I think another one of the barriers to people's long-term utilization is that they have a and in patients, we infuse IV ketamine and, you know, through an IV and within a minute or two, they're out. You give propofol, it's fast. We give fentanyl and we, we have an idea of the time frame. But in this case, since we're titrating it and different people have different responses, you have to observe for where that response is and interact with the patient in a sense. Now that doesn't mean it has to be you. We allow our nurses to do this on their own because it's so safe. When it's a minimal sedation protocol, we let the nurses decide where they are on the RAS and titrate the medication up or down based on that. It doesn't have to be you as a provider doing that. And that's what makes it really nice because, again, it's very safe.
2: I hear you saying we're going to start at 50% on the mask, titrate up or down, and the maximum is going to be 70%. We're going to wait a minute to two minutes before we start our procedure. Are you titrating by 10%? Kind of how does that titration work?
1: Yeah, I don't think I have great evidence for anybody listening to the to this. I think I will typically go five to 10%. And the overdose of nitrous is not excessive sedation typically. It's dysphoria and maybe if they're breathing really, really rapidly, some nausea to avoid those two things i would rather go a little bit slower but if you went from 50 and you jumped right to 70 they're not going to suddenly become obtunded it just is unnecessary to go up that fast so it's one of these things you can dial it up at whatever rate you feel you want to but you may bump into some dysphoria or nausea if you go too fast so 5 5 to 10% incremental adjustments. There are, um, you mentioned the 70%, that just happens to be the maximum that's allowed. So they're always gonna be on 30% oxygen, but there are some device, devices and systems that it's a 50-50 mix. And, and that's just what you get, you get 50-50. And this is, um, this is actually really commonly used um, in the pre-hospital setting uh, when it's used there They'll use, a, it's called Entinox, or a 50-50 mix. So, so you don't titrate at all. You just give them a 50% nitrous oxide. It is often self-administered.
0: You've mentioned a couple of times about the system definition for sedation, the system of administration. I remember years back when you brought this to our department, there was a lot of work that, that was involved to convince people this was a safe thing and uh, achieve a lot of what we've done. And we're grateful for it. Can you walk us through and the audience through
1: how you did this? Yeah, th- this is one of the things that baffled me, Vank. I couldn't quite understand why there was so much concern or resistance over something that is used so routinely and much lower, and in, in, I would say in, in, in situations that have far less monitoring capabilities and the ability to respond to any sort of airway event than we do, and that's the dentist's office. But yet, there still Absolutely. was a significant amount of, of reticence to it, and I think most of it came from this idea that this is an anesthetic gas. The anesthesiologists use this as part of their induction and therefore we have to have it in a very controlled environment. But the reality is it's a really terrible anesthetic. The MAC or what people need to get somebody to sedation for um, nitrous oxide is 104%, meaning you have to put it in a hyperbaric environment uh, to actually get them to, uh, to be sedated and that that is a pretty big mac. I like to say. Um, so that was one of the things. I think the other thing is just we have things that work, right? We have medications that we like to use, and we get comfortable with them. And so anything that's new has to be introduced, and and people have to be. I don't want to say convinced, but they want they have to see the the value and utility of having another tool in the toolbox. And so that was one of the barriers. And then there's also the, well, if you're going to use it in your environment, other people should be able to use it in their environments and they may not have the same capabilities. So we had this with dermatology and dermatology had a nitrous protocol that basically wasn't used. And so we had to make sure that ours didn't, wasn't terribly discrepant from theirs. So I think getting all the stakeholders um, involved and sitting around the same table and having discussions. Um, yeah. But ultimately, understanding what are the fears, what are the concerns, and then using the evidence surrounding them. So I've just reams of studies that show the safety of this in different patient populations, different environments, and that helped alleviate some of the concern. And the final biggest barrier is this idea of scavenging. And do we have to have this? Uh, do we have to have nitrous pumped into every single room? we have to have scavenging devices in every room or do we buy a device that we move from room to room and ultimately we overcame the the cost by getting a device that we move from room to room which is another barrier if it's not right there in front of you you don't think about using it we've after implementation had to do some educational things just to remind people hey we even have this and because there's a slight abuse potential for nitrous it's locked in a uh, it's locked away and only certain people can access it because we wouldn't want any of, our, any of our employees sort of back in the corner taking hits off the nitrous. Although we do have access to many other very addictive medications in our environment as well. And so I don't think nitrous is any different. And if they really want to get at it, all they have to do is go buy themselves a can of whipping cream. Can you explain what scavenging is? I'm not familiar most of the circuits will have an input and an output so there's kind of a suction output the suction output will will take the the waste gas that's exhaled and then it'll find a way to jettison it into the environment so it's a suction related device that will um, not doesn't put it in into the room but it's basically a dilutional effect you're trying to keep it from concentrating and as i said it it is heavier than air so just like carbon dioxide from dry ice you see it kind of settles out low nitrous could potentially do the same thing if you had a lot of it in an environment so the, the idea is let's if there's not great airflow let's just suck suck out the extra nitrous and, and and send it out into the environment where it came from
2: i think of this most commonly when i'm working in pediatrics for some reason i think that's probably because you taught it to me when i was a resident but does it work the same way in adults you know is this something we should be expanding more into our adult practice
1: Absolutely. I think that um, that we grossly underutilize it in our adult patients. We think about trying to minimize these negative experience for our pediatric population, because we know the, the implications it can have on them for future visits and, and things. And we just don't like to torture our pediatric patients. But I feel like we should treat our adult patients similarly. Um, and, and so, yeah, it works just as well. And it's actually probably easier to use in adults because they tend to accept either the closed face mask, which we've been using a lot in the COVID environment just as a way to minimize the amount of potential aerosolization, where there is a nasal hood, a nasal mask that that many pediatric patients will tolerate better. My daughter did very well in the dentist with a nasal mask that had a nice grape smell in it. So we'll use smells in the masks and stuff to to get the patients used to it and let them hold it on themselves. But I think from an adult standpoint, as Svenka's You can administer it yourself. You really can tell the effect and you can even give some guidance as to, am I getting, you know, am I getting the effects I need? And you can get a lot more of that from the adult population than you can from our young patient population. Uh, One thing I do wanna just make sure I don't fail to mention is that anxiety also is a spectrum. Okay. You might still have a patient who seems still quite anxious and unhappy during their procedure but it's only 50% of the amount of anxiety or unhappiness that they would have had, had you not used this. That's different than we often will see when we try to completely sedate somebody, right? We want them out completely. So it's not a failure of the medication if they're still anxious, but they're less anxious than they would have been otherwise. And that's where it's helpful. And it goes away rapidly. Um, And so you can send them home, right away after procedure, not have to have somebody drive them home. That I think is an important part, especially with our adult patient population, where if you give them midazolam for their procedure, you may have now interfered with their ability to get home or they may have to stay around longer because now they're wobbly like a drunk person, where nitrous goes away rapidly and you can actually expedite their
2: discharge. I think that's a a huge thing that I didn't completely understand because, you know, when we're thinking about a full waiting room and length of stay, which is not the the main priority, but, you know, if the patient's completely done with their care and the room could be used for another sick patient, waiting to recover from a sedation can take a long time. So, you know, th- you're telling me this, this washes out really quickly. I think about, you know, something like ketamine, the patient's got to wake up, they got to eat and drink, walk for me, and then indeed somebody's going to drive them home. Are there any requirements you have in terms of the recovery for one of these patients leaving, leaving care?
1: Yeah, it's, it's basically they get back to their functional status before and they're likely to achieve that functional status much more rapidly because of... Um, the, the washout and and one of the things we do is we we often do a washout with hundred percent oxygen and and there's two reasons for that one is it just helps you know create a gradient and the, and it'll diffuse out of the tissues and the blood quicker but it also helps prevent the potential for what's called um, diffusion hypoxia so if you have a lot of nitrous in your blood and and it's diffusing into your alveoli alveoli quickly there's this idea that Somebody could become hypoxic. I think it's probably most is more of a, of a theoretical risk and probably only really of a concern in our COPD patient population. But we overcome that by essentially just giving them way more oxygen than they ever would have had in the ambient environment. And so we do a little wash up. But once that period is done, the drug's gone. And so your, your discharge is really based on other factors, such as. Other medications they might have gone gotten, or, or the need for follow-up X-rays or, or discharge instructions, and it's not based on, on the nitrous itself.:
0: A couple of times you've mentioned some of the physical properties of the gas. And a lot of medications I know how they affect the patient and some of the chemistry. Are there key things about how nitrous is causing anxiolysis or the pharmacokinetics of it, other than the time-onset time offset that you've already mentioned. Are there other things that we should know? Yeah, I
1: think so. So some of the properties of nitrous really line up with what have been described as the properties of an ideal agent for anxiolysis or sedation. It's rapid on, short duration of action. It's effective with minimal side effects. It's easy to administer, very good safety profile, and it has a low addictive potential. It's relatively inexpensive. It's colorless. for the most part odorless. i already mentioned that it's heavier than air, but it rapidly dissolves across the pulmonary vasculature and it's not metabolized in any way. So it's what goes in comes out exactly the same and it's, it's really pulmonarily um, excreted. It, it does act on several different receptors. So it, it's shown to act on the opioid receptors. And so it, it, it can be classified as an opioid like agent and these receptors in the brain and spinal cord in particular and nitrous helps release endogenous opiates. And this is known because it can be blocked by naloxone. So if somebody has got naloxone, nitrous doesn't work as well, but it's not that it doesn't work at all because it actually hits some other receptors as well. So that sort of, I like to think that the sort of ketamine like effects are because it affects the NMDA receptor as well. It's an NMDA antagonist and it affects GABA receptors. So we know that that helps its anxiety properties. So it's really, it's a bunch of different receptors but it's wrap it on, wrap it off.
2: You have such a deep knowledge uh, of nitrous. We're just so lucky to have you on today. One thing that I could definitely use help with when you're talking with a family and talking through options for sedation or non-sedation, it may be in the case of nitrous, light, very light sedation. How, how does that consent process go? So, you know, different institutions have their different
1: um, requirements for consent. If it's minimal sedation or anxiolysis, we don't have to necessarily get that full procedural consent form filled out like we do here at at Mayo for a moderate or a deep sedation. But if I think that we might have to transition from just nitrous alone as an agent to an extra agents, I will go ahead and consent them for a moderate or a deep sedation and have that discussion. Hey, if this isn't cutting it as a individual agent, we can then move on and transition to using other adjuncts, or we can kind of stop altogether and just restart with a totally different plan. So part of the, what I do as far as consent is what I envision might happen. And there are times where I look at a situation or a patient and say, this is not a nitrous situation at all. Both bone, forearm fracture in a young child or a tip-fib fracture or something that's extremely painful. Nitrous is not my go-to for that because even with agents, it's I find that there's other things that work better. So I talk about the fact that they're going to be awake, they're not going to be asleep, and they are going to be able to interact with the environment. They're going to let us know how we're doing And we're going to be able to um, kind of talk them through it as well. And so I think that's an important thing. So if the parent is in the room, they understand uh, that that there's some agency on the part of the individual if they're old enough and verbal. And if they're young or pre-verbal, the parent in the room can can actually see other elements of, of, um, of how the nitrous is working. You can see sort of the child relax a little bit or the vital signs maybe improve the tachycardia gets better, or the tachypnea goes down. But they also are part of the decision-making for those younger pre-verbal children. Is this, is this getting your, your child to the, to the destination that you feel comfortable with? Um, I think many of us who are parents realize that we have different thresholds. Uh, when giving my children the intranasal flu vaccine when it was available when they were younger, it was, if you don't sit still, I'm gonna hold you down. <laughs> because um, they knew this This is how this was going to go. This was not a choice, but that's not how everybody works. And that's certainly not how we want to approach certain procedures. But vaccinations are something that I believe our children have to get used to, and we can't sedate them all for those things. But in the ER environment, when you're doing a procedure, that may not be the time to teach that lesson. Um, and so the parents are a huge part of that uh, decision. Is this working or not? Uh, is this where we want it to be? And I think that's an important part uh, of the environment, environmental control, which which is very different than some some of our sedations where we just we just knock them out, and uh, and then nobody has to have the input. We just know that they're already sedated enough. I hope that answers your question.
2: It definitely does. And kind of along that, you're you're talking about basically having a future vision for how the procedure is going to go. I want to see if I'm understanding. So if this is something that's probably going to need some lidocaine and there's a significant anxiety component, that's a procedure that might be a really good fit for this. If you're thinking you're going to need a lot of additional analgesia, maybe stuff like fentanyl, maybe you're approaching a sedation. Is that right? How do you how do you view a procedure where you're suddenly going to be needing to add fentanyl. Is that kind of transitioning us to the full sedation? Yeah, that's
1: where I would say, at least according to our institutional requirements or guidelines, sedation is, this is one of my um, areas that I really like to talk about, which is again, what is sedation? Sedation is not a drug. It's not a combination of drugs. It's a level of alertness. But we keep using this term in a very imprecise way, but that's how people still use it. Is this a sedation or not? And so in terms of um, nitrous, uh, there are many times I will use nitrous along with doses of fentanyl, but I just approach it as we would with moderate or deep sedation with that extra level of monitoring, even though I know that they may not get to a moderate or deep level of sedation, but that's part of the, that's part of the guideline that we wrote. It's also part of the guideline I'd like to rewrite as we've gotten more experience with it. and people realize like, we don't need to have a respiratory therapist present if we gave them 50 mics of fentanyl in addition to uh, nitrous, but that's part of the negotiation process that anybody who's setting up something has to go through. And we needed to do that at the time to get everybody to feel comfortable and confident with it. Once you've got more and more experience with something, you can then rewrite your guidelines um, to fit whatever your works well for your practice. And I just want to emphasize that, uh, We use this primarily as a nurse-driven thing. It's not a provider-driven thing. We order it, but the nurse has complete control over it. And I'm often not even in the room when nitrous is being used for many of the things. Or the only reason I'm in the room is because I'm the one who's doing the laceration repair or I'm the one who's doing the IND. So for a lot of procedures like ino casts or IV starts or burn management where you want the, the, the nurse to clean the wound and dress it and stuff, you can order this as a really nice way for to help somebody else get their job done. And, and that's not how we often think of sedation, right? We think of sedation as something that we are there for, but this is a, a form of sedation on that more mild side. That just deals with anxiety and some analgesia that doesn't need us to be there present based on certain pr- parameters that we've established.
0: This has been really wonderful. And I, as in preparation to talking with you about this, I was trying to think what the future might hold for nitrous. And I'd be curious what you think about that. And the only place my mind went was, could this be even used in the field? And do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, actually, um, it, it's, I'll go back to LL Cool J. Don't call it a comeback. It's been there for years. There's a publication from 1970 about uh, ambulance use of a 50-50 mixture, and it's used in other countries. It absolutely could be. I think the barriers often are just uh, the abuse potential, or how do we monitor this? It's the same kind of things we run into in our own institution. Well, oh, it's an anesthetic. Is this sedation? But I, I will tell you that having somebody puffing away on nitrous in the back of the rig rather than getting big doses of narcotics, I'd feel a lot safer with that because they're helping control it and they're managing their their discomfort rather than us just trying to guess. So it's absolutely, um, that's not the future, that's actually the past, but it could be the future for our practice because at the present we don't use it. To see it expanded in its utilization as to think about it more, much more quickly for things um, than we currently do, things like IV starts for anxious patients. Now you think, well, geez, we just should just do it. We can't, we can't waste time rolling the thing in and titrating up. But, but the reality is, it's not about necessarily just our experience, about this experience of the patient. And so, just like we use in the pediatric population, we we have a vapor coolant, we have numbing cream. I discuss these things with parents or patients and ask them what their preference might be. When I go to the dentist, I don't get nitrous, but other people do. And I think as a service to the patients that we serve, we might want to start thinking about having this as a menu of options that they could
2: elect to, to take advantage of for their own personal well-being and benefit. I truly appreciate that patient first mentality that I think really exemplifies what Mayo is all about. You have so many pro tips that I have to take advantage of one more. I think I understand a, a little bit better what uh, an adult would be like. They could be self-administering, but do you have any pro tips for how to get kids comfortable with the mask? Uh, how, do, how do you work through those situations? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so, as I mentioned before, there's often a couple different
1: types of masks and and there's, there are um, masks that have video games associated with them and stuff like that. Uh, We don't have those here. Those add an extra cost to the administration of this that we didn't necessarily feel because we don't actually hear Mayo charge our patients for this. We think of it as part of the service that we're providing and other places I'm sure would, would charge for, for administration of nitrous. But But there's a nasal hood and there's also a full face mask. We have smells that we'll put in there. So bubble gum, strawberry, whatever. I usually joke around with older kids and ask them if they want smelly socks or dog poop or barf smell just to kind of create that sort of more funny environment around the fact that they're going to go through something that they didn't plan on that day. And and so we, we then let them hold the mask. And when we're not doing it, when it's not everybody in the room and get used to what it's gonna feel like to have something over their nose or over their mouth. And then I'm often in there um, telling stupid dad jokes and stuff, often uh, surrounding things like, um, you know, poop. Poop jokes are even funnier when you have nitrous oxide on board, just to lighten the mood a little bit and help people see the fact that the patient isn't asleep if they're worried that they're gonna be really sedated. But also to help, you know, create a mood in the room, and, and you can you can also prime individuals. This is not specifically with the mask itself, but you can prime them with, "Hey, you might feel like you're floating on air. Things might seem kind of funny," and and they do respond well to that. And there's studies about temperaments and and sort of priming people. And I think this is a lot about the art of using this this um, this agent, which you don't really need to have if you're giving somebody propofolas and warning them that it might burn a little bit um, or giving somebody ketamine. When you give that to them, you say, well, the room might start to look a little bit strange. So why don't you close your eyes? So there's a little bit more art to, to, the, to the efficacy of nitrous than some of the other things we use. And I think that's important as a practitioner um, and you get used to that. And the nursing staff also gets used to that as they use it more. When Thinking about this meeting and this
0: recording, I was thinking of more Star Wars and like the situation with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon trying to get gassed by the Federation. But now after talking with you and realizing that it feels a little more like back to the future, that we're really revisiting the past and bringing it back into the future. And I really appreciate you doing this. It was a really meaningful experience to watch you build this system over a long period of time and amount of effort that that took. And then now we are all benefiting from it and um, and truly are an artist that way. So thank you for being on Always On EM and talking about nitrous oxide. Um, Any final words for us, Dr. Hami?
1: Well, well, first of all, thank you. You give me too much credit. Um, This was a big team effort. And I think that's an important part. The nursing staff, our nurse educators, other people, and, and, in, in order for a program like this to be successful, you need to have people who are passionate and champion, but you have to get the buy-in from other people and, and the ones that are going to use it day to day. And so, so doing something like this that you guys are doing and creating increased awareness um, is, is also an important part of that process. So I want to thank you. I also would just like to offer to anybody who's listening to this, if they want to reach out to me, I can give them a, a resources. I can give them... a our template of what we use to decrease the, the activation energy to get things going at your own institution. Lots of, um, uh, even a presentation that you can give to help educate people. I'd be more than happy to share any of those things. And and you could just shoot me an email at H-O-M-M-E dot J-A-M-E-S at sign M-A-Y-O dot E-D-U. That's H-O-M-E dot James at May dot E-D-U. Because I'd love to help anybody who wants to implement something like this, just overcome some of those barriers by giving you some of the work we've already done. Absolutely. And I would imagine having you out as a visiting
0: professor to talk to a big group of people, you've done that before here. You're a gifted educator, and that would be awesome as well. And Alex now will try and put any links and documents in the attached web resources for this too.
1: Sure, I just want to leave you with a quote uh, from Robert Southey. he was a poet, um, and he said, I'm sure that the air in heaven must be this wonder-working gas of delight. And you could say, well, I'm sure that the air in my ER could be this wonder-working gas of delight, but you just have to take advantage of it. So <laughs> there you go, nitrous oxide, the air that fills heaven.
0: The Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank
2: Balamkonda.